Welcome to Commonplace Expertise, where we take a look at the expertise that exists in the heads of the most interesting people around us. These conversations are meant to help you make better business and career decisions, and I hope you find them useful. Today, I'm speaking to David McIver. David is most known for pushing the adoption and ergonomics of property testing and software with his testing library, Hypothesis. Hypothesis is well-regarded and widely used in the Python programming language community, and it introduced a handful of innovations that are now quite widespread in the practice of property testing. You hear more about Hypothesis during the podcast as we talk about what he's learned pushing the boundaries of a domain. Then we shift gears to talk about his coaching practice. David specializes in helping programmers with self-improvement, more effective learning, and developing soft skills, which many computer programmers are likely to struggle with in ways that may limit their careers or their personal development. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David McIver. Hi, David. All right. So to get started, I, I was sort of thinking about how to open up this podcast. And I thought one a good way is to sort of ask you about hypothesis, like what is hypothesis? And how do you, you know, get into building um, this thing, which in many ways, for I mean, for those of you who, who, who don't do software, maybe explain it for those people, and then sort of like talk about the story of like how you got started building mm-hmm. hypothesis. Sure. Yeah. So for not the explanation I usually give for non-software people is I start by telling them a little bit about software testing, which is when you've written a piece of software, you want to know that it does the right thing. And one way you can do this is you can basically just manually poke about at it and see see whether it looks roughly right. But then you then you make some changes and you have to now redo the entire manual process over and over again um, every time you make some change. This is slow and tedious. So what we do is we write um, software tests, which are essentially just a little program that automates the thing that a human would do. It runs through a, a set of predefined actions on the software and it checks that certain things have happened. So for example, it says, log into the website, uh, click this button, you should see this piece of text next on the screen, that sort of thing. This is fairly simplified, and like a lot of software tests don't run the full application stack, but that's the basic idea. And the problem with these software tests is that like they don't really help you out in any way other than like what you would already do by hand. And so Hypothesis is a piece of software that helps you write software tests that in some sense actively go out looking for bugs in the software by letting you generate a variety of actions that the software can perform on this. So for example, with our log into the website and click this button and you should see this text on the screen, you might want to vary the sort of the details of the user you're logging in as. You might want to sort of try a variety, a variety of different names for the user. You might want to make sure that it still works if they've got accents in their name or or Chinese characters or the like. And so you end up writing... And so and it, it, it can get more complicated than that. But basically, Hypothesis generates data for use in software testing and potentially generates a variety of different actions and tries to use this to explore your software in a way that it can find bugs that you wouldn't have found by hand without a lot more manual testing than you otherwise would have done than you you want to do what made you interested in this particular problem in the the beginning so happens more or less by accident it's i so hypothesis is is descended from a library in a, a software library 
which which does similar things in a another programming language, um, and called the other programming language is called Haskell, and the original the original library that hypothesis is based on is called QuickCheck. I had used another library. I hadn't used QuickCheck very much, but I had used something else called ScalaCheck. So which is quick check, but for the programming language Scala. And so I was already like reasonably familiar with the basic ideas. And then I think I'd been talking to, to someone about property-based testing, which is what this type of testing is called, at a conference. And shortly after that, I was moving jobs and I needed to use, I needed to learn a new programming language, Python. So I was just like, what I wanted a toy project to write in Python and a quick check port seemed like a reasonable thing to do. So I wrote, <laughs> I wrote the very, the very first edition of Hypothesis, which then sort of languished in not quite obscurity for a few years because I'd sort of I'd left that company I'd moved on to Google where I couldn't really work on it and and in the sort of the meantime people started using I'm sorry this is a very long story by the way no this but, is uh, a good story um, yeah, okay in the meantime people started using hypothesis because like there were a, there were a bunch of other quick check ports to python but none of them were very good neither was hypothesis hypothesis was very bad but the hypothesis had one fairly crucial feature that none of the others had, which is what's called shrinking in quick check language or test case reduction is to use the general term, which means that when you, when hypothesis first finds a bug, it will have like, here is the, the username that triggers the bug in the login form, say. Then like the first thing it tried might be like this horrible, 200 character or nonsense string. And and what will happen with hypothesis is it won't stop there. It will say, okay, what part of this string actually matters and try to make it smaller and simpler. And so eventually, like, you'll probably end up with a name that just has the one character that causes problems. Just a so, sense of the timeline. What, what, what year was this? So that would have been 2013, I think. How many years after you started the library? No, I'm sorry. 2013 was when I started the library. Right. Um, but but it, but it, but hypothesis had shrinking from the very beginning. Wow. Yeah, and and the reason was basically because I had already like used Scala check extensively, so I knew just how annoying property based testing is without shrinking. To be, to be clear, shrinking is not my invention. Shrinking is built something found in Quick Check and Scala check and most of the good Quick Check ports. But right. But shrinking is also quite hard to implement, so many of the bad quick check ports don't have it, and they're sort of borderline unusable as a result. So I'll tell you why I'm interested in and why I started the conversation with your work with Hypothesis. In in our conversations, right, you've mentioned that in many ways, Hypothesis, you have like moved to the very edge of property testing. And in many yep. ways, like the work that you've done with Hypothesis um, has pushed forward, I think, the adoption of property testing in general mm -hmm. in m many programming yeah. languages. And and some of the techniques that you came up with during the, the work that you did on Hypothesis mm -hmm. is now sort of like, you know, they're they're part of, they're in the air. And so I want to sort of dig into like what that was like, right? Like, mm -hmm. could you yeah. sort of talk a bit about what were your contributions and what was the state of the art at the yeah. time? And like, yeah. where do you push it to? Sure. So, so I should say, like in 2013, hypothesis was very much not the state of the art. It was like it, it was the, it was it had a weird API. It was kind of clunky, and it had all of the limitations that other implementations had. The so the thing that I've pushed the state of the art on is basically this shrinking aspect of it, and the the problem that you have in a lot of or. There are two. Th there are two things in hypothesis that are, I think, state of the art, and they are both usability improvements rather than um, like 
a little bit of usability improvements. I don't want to couch that because like this is why hypothesis is sort of driven a lot of adoption of property-based testing, I think. Certainly a lot of adoption in property-based testing in Python. Like, I think it's fair to say that property-based testing would not be a thing we used in Python if it weren't for me. But one of the problems you have in property-based testing is that you generate, you generate an example, a test case for testing the software application, and you need to make sure that it's the right sort of example. So, for example, if I were to generate something that wasn't a valid login in some way, like I let's talk about sign up rather than login. Say, say I generated something where I was signing up for a website and I sort of filled in all the details on the form and it asked me to put in my password and then it asked me to confirm the password again. I have to make sure that the two, the two values are the same in order for this to work. And the website has to be able to work if the two values aren't the same, but in the sense that like it should correctly reject it. But if my test is sign up for the website, log in, do this thing, then it will fail at the point of sign up if the two password fields are not identical. So this is what's called a validity criterion. Like you, it's a test case can be invalid in the sense that it doesn't do the things that are needed in order to test the thing that it's supposed to do test. And often it's very easy to write things which are gen- where you guarantee that you're generating a valid thing up, up front. So for example, you could generate a valid sign up there by generating a password and then saying you reuse the same password for the next one. But classically, the way shrinking worked is that it took the test case that you were you had generated and it tried modifying it. So it tries cutting bits out of it. It says, okay, what happens if we make the password shorter, say? And it does this without knowing anything about how you generated it. So what would happen is that shrinking would, uh, shrinking would try making the first password smaller and not the uh, confirmation password. And now that wouldn't work. And depending on how you have the test set up, this can result in two different uh, types of problem. One is just that, like shrinking may not be very good because it can't make the changes it needs to it needs to make, and the other one is that if your test is written a particular way, like it might cause the test to fail. Like it might like the you might get an error that says form was rejected, and this might look like a failing test. And and now what happens is you found a real bug in the generation case and. In time, but the test, the shrinking then turned it into a fake bug that isn't a real bug. And now you get annoyed at the, at the testing system. And so the change that, or the thing that, the thing that I invented is, it turns out that like there was some prior art, but it was good that I was aware that I wasn't aware of this prior art because it doesn't work, it doesn't work very well. And I would have copied it as other, otherwise. But like the thing I invented was a particular way of making sure that every shrinking works through the generation system. So rather than you can think of the test case generation as providing a recipe for how to construct a valid test case and the shrinking in hypothesis works through that generation system. So what will happen is it will say, it'll try shrinking the first password, and then it will know that it's still supposed to just copy that over to the next one. So as a result, people never have to really know how to write a shrinker, which was one of the problems that happens in classic weight check. And also the, and, and also like the test cases produced will always be valid.
Interesting. So you said there were two particular ways, right? Which, uh, yeah. what was the second way? Yeah, the, se- the second way is a way of gener- generically remembering the test case for later. So what happens with my hypothesis is if you rerun a failing test, it will immediately remember the way it failed last time and it will just reuse that immediately. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And it's very obvious that that's a thing that you want. Yes. But, um, but it's quite, it's quite hard to do for a couple of reasons. But the main, the main one is a test case could be anything. There's not necessarily a nice simple format to write it to disk. And also a, yeah. And also if the, if the test changes in some way, then it may be that the old test case is no longer valid for the, for the new test. Like I don't have a very good example for that, no, but it's all right. Like yeah. how, so we're moving sort of like trying to figure out is to somebody listening to this who has never sort of, you know, designed something from scratch or push mm-hmm. much less push something to the very edge of like what has mm-hmm. been done before. Right. What was difficult about this process? What, what were these were these sort of ideas? How hard was it for you to reach these two sort of major innovations? The honest answer is that it wasn't that hard. Partly this was luck and that I had some good background for it, but a lot of it was that I was able to do this because not that many people had worked on this particular class of problems. Um, oh, because more. like people have worked on property-based testing, but sort of shrinking has always been treated as like a minor side note. And the reason I was working on them is essentially because I have like people were people were telling me that things were irritating about the library, and I was going, "You're right, that is irritating. Let me see if I can figure that out." So it was essentially research driven by primarily user experience goals. There was there was no sort of like grand research agenda. I was just listening to people telling me what was irritating and and following on from and. And trying to help them with that. I think the remembering saved data examples thing, saved test cases was because was something that I wanted. And so I did that because I found it irritating to not have that. And that ended up being a surprisingly useful way into the, the idea that also provided like fully generic shrinking. And what happened, what happened there was that like there was, there was an initial very bad implementation where basically what happened was that I wrote a bunch of custom shrinking logic and also had a fallback system where the version that you would serialize onto disk was something that you could, because you had to be able to serialize it onto disk and you had to be able to check that the thing you'd serialized from, you'd got from the disk was valid. So that was a format that you could do test case reduction on. Um, oh, wow. Uh, so it was like sort of like a, you reach that point and you realize that you could use that as well for yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, and then the sort of like the next generation version, which came in hypothesis 3.0, I think. Yeah, it was meant to come in 2.0, but I couldn't make it as backwards compatible as I, as I, I thought. So I ended up having to bump the binary version. And again, um, sorry, no, it was, it wasn't meant to come in 2.0. 2.0 was a deprecation release to sort of remove a bunch of stuff. And then I turned out to have to remove a little bit more to, um, get the full idea working. So there, 2.0 was very rapidly followed by 3.0, um, which, had a universal format that worked for everything. So there is now just like a single a single format that um, is both the on-disk format and what shrinking operates on. Right. So sort of two interrelated questions here. I think we've talked about this before, like how software design is very often like a, 
step by step unfolding, right? Mm-hmm. Which was what happened here as well, right? Yeah. You 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 wanted something to scratch, you know, you, you built something to scratch your own itch, and then it, you mm-hmm. modified it, and then you let your taste plus feedback guide the evolution of the software. Um, but because this is a testing library, so like the first question is like what were you testing it on? Like, were you writing like random test cases or like random websites to test on or, or what? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I, it, so for the initial version, I would have just been running it on toy examples. Basically there's mm. this sort of small list of examples that everyone uses. Most of which I don't think are very good. Like your classic property-based test example, which I hate is if you reverse a list twice, you get the same list back, but, but, but things of that ilk. So I think initially I just had a bunch of toy examples somewhere leading up to hypothesis 1.0, which would have been in early 2015. I realized that it was sort of stupid to have a badly tested testing library. So I decided to go for 100% test coverage and just wrote a whole bunch of manual tests for it. Hypothesis is tested with itself in places, but I think that's... It's not always a gimmick, but it's mostly a gimmick. It's, there, are a few, there, are a few, there are a few things where Hypothesis has genuinely caught bugs in itself, but, but for the most part, Hypothesis is tested but with itself because we can. Right. And then, so like the second interrelated question um, is, at what, at what point do you know that you were onto something? That's a good question. I think the point at which I did the insight that led to the sort of the 3.0 release, the universal representation, that was the point where I was just like, oh, this is actually genuinely novel in important ways. And so that's when I, that's when I knew I was onto something from the research side. From the point of view of like whether I, I when I knew I was onto something from the usage side, honestly, it's been a very gradual thing. It's I tried to push the usage a bit too hard, a bit too early, I think, and so I was trying to build a business around Hypothesis in sort of 2015, 2016, and I didn't do a very good job of that. So I think at the at the time, I I wasn't convinced I was onto something simply because like I figured I would be having an easier time building a business if I if I were, but mm. I think it's been a slow build and like gotten more and more traction as people have sort of heard about it. And I think at this point we've hit pretty good usage. I don't remember the statistics. I should have looked this up, but I think like JetBrains does this survey of Python developers and a, a fairly gratifyingly large percentage of them had, were using hypothesis at this point. It's like I don't think we're in the sort of the majority of Python users use hypothesis or anything. Like I think it was probably more in the low double digits range. But I, yeah. I think many companies use hypothesis, if I'm not mistaken. I, I could you like if I'm not mistaken. So I, I had a friend who he's working in Google and he ran a you know they have universal search and he found like hypothesis inside the Google code base mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's true that there's at least like any big user of Python probably has hypothesis somewhere somewhere in their code base. Like probably not, it's probably not like the major way they do testing, but it's, I think like anyone who is sort of very into software testing in Python either you, has used hypothesis, uses hypothesis or hypothesis is on there. Oh yeah, I keep meaning to use that, but I haven't been able to figure out how yet. When, <laughs> I think it's actually very easy to figure out how, but um, people think it's scarier than it is. And I, th- I think that's genuinely one of the big problems with adoption is that because Hypothesis has this Haskell quick check association, everyone assumes that it's like 
scary thing for people who are super into types and formal verification when actually it's just software testing. Yeah, I think sort of to speak to that, to, to, to like how broadly uh, hypothesis has spread, I remember your... I remember your 1.0 uh, release because at the time I was mostly writing in Python and mm. I think I was, I think it was 2015 if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, 1.0 was 2015. Yeah, so I, I was newly in Vietnam and I, I, I still subscribe to this Python mailing list where they sort of talk about the cool stuff, projects in Python. Mm. And Hypothesis was like one of the, uh, it was the, the big sort of link or like the big project in that particular newsletter. So that's how I sort of stumbled upon that. And then I, I guess this is a nice segue to sort of like talk about, we'll circle back to the business in a bit, but I just want to get a sense of like maybe people should listen, to should hear like your story of like how you got here. Now that we've sort um, of... Yeah covered uh, hypothesis which is sort of one very interesting part of your life but i know mm-hmm. you're doing something very different yeah yeah so um after hypothesis or after i failed to build a business around hypothesis i ended up doing a phd around it because i was just the my haha only serious joke about this is that i was really enjoying the research and i was really struggling for the business with the business and there's a place for people who enjoy research and struggle with the business it's that that didn't go so well and i've quit the phd now but sort of at, at some point in the middle of the phd i was just like i um I sort of looked at my life and I was just like, you know what? I'm not very happy. That seems like something I should do something about. Um, and so I uh, did what any self-respecting nerd would do when they sort of want to understand their feelings. I read a whole bunch of books. Um, and like some of them were very much at the self-help don't take too seriously end. Some of them were more more at the like the serious therapy end. Some of them were just like a whole bunch of random life stuff. Um, and... So I started, so I started essentially working on like trying to understand my own emotions, trying to understand life, the universe and everything. At some point, I think that must have been like very late 2018. And at some time, sort of early 2020, um, I was just like, okay, I've got all of these ideas in my head and I've written about a tiny fraction of them. I should clearly fix that. And so I just started writing a huge amount on my notebook blog, which is just a place to put form, poorly formed thoughts. And people found it really useful. So I started a newsletter and then and people found that quite useful as apparently. I, I'm not making a huge amount of money off the newsletter, but like I got paid subscriptions and people like it enough to pay me for my writing, which is honestly a weird feeling. Um, and then in, Back in September, I put out a small tweet basically saying, so I've got all these like thoughts and useful skills. Would anyone like me to coach them? I could probably be a pretty good coach. And it turned out that quite a lot of people wanted me to coach them, which, again, slightly surprising. But but that's been going pretty well. And earlier this year, I was sort of was having a sort of heart-searching moment where I was just like, my PhD and my coaching are sort of getting in the uh, or coaching and writing are sort of getting in the way of each other. And it's very clear that like there's there's one that I want to do and has a large positive impact on the world, and there's one that I don't want to do and doesn't have much of a positive impact on the world, and where I'm essentially like having to fight tooth and nail to. I mean, that's not entirely fair. I've only actually made it through, got one paper published in the course of my PhD, but it was 
quite painful to get that published and it just sort of made me dread the idea of trying to get another one undone and in the meantime like there was all this writing that was getting like really positive feedback that was clearly helping people and it just seemed much more sensible for me to focus on that so I did and now I'm sort of trying to tie all of these themes together because like one thing that I've noticed that's interesting is that all of my no all, all of my yeah, I think it is, I think currently all of my clients are software developers, and huh. some some of this is because I know a lot of software developers, and some of this is because software developers have money to pay for coaching. But <laughs> but I think a lot of this is also that I've ended up with like the slightly weird niche of like explaining soft skills to software developers because. I have the right mindset for them, and I sort of spent a lot of time learning to communicate well. And so when I take all of these ideas from therapy and self-help and philosophy and feminist literature and political theory or whatever, and sort of try and turn, go, okay, but how do I actually use those? The, the result ends up being something that is quite palatable to software developers because it's explained with, like, in relatively clear, practical prose. Mm. And so just so I'm I'm currently sort of like trying to sort of turn this into more of a business focused thing where I like I go, I go talk to software development uh, software companies and software development teams and try and use the same skill set at the team level but that's sort of early days yeah I think you answered my follow-up question, which was like to sort of talk about what were the things that you were writing about that were so attractive to, you know, the people who were reading it. But but perhaps to sort of like color that in a bit more, mm-hmm. uh, could you give more examples, like some concrete examples of these things that that really help the people who are reading them? Yeah, so one of the things that I think has it's both a, a good example of like how much my what I'm doing is explaining feelings to software developers is that I have the I have this metaphor of emotional reactions as legacy code. Um <laughs> Which is actually like very, very very solidly grounded in actual therapeutic theory, but is definitely like not how a therapist will explain it to you. And so, so the idea the idea is this: like a an emotional reaction is a you're having an emotional reaction to do something. This is from a psychologist called Adler, who's sort of one of the original big three. He's like the fifth beetle of psychologists, though, because people don't talk to him about him that much. Um, You've you've got you've got Jung, you've got Freud, you've got Adler, and there are others as well who I'm sure are important too. But I'm not actually. Anyway, so Adler's point is that, like, when you get angry at something, that it, you get angry in order to behave in an angry. Like, the anger is driving you towards a particular course of action and is enabling you to do so. So, the you can think of like your emotional reactions as a bunch of learned responses like this. What you you are angry because at some point you have learned that it is useful to be angry here, and this this is this works with other emotions as well. I think like some some of them are less clearly driving you to a particular particular action and are more sort of like evaluative or judgment call all things. Like you can feel that something you can feel happy and that doesn't necessarily mean you're driven to act in a happy manner. That's more of an evaluative like this is good. I like this. I want to do more of it. But I but either way like there is a program, not programmed, there is a learned reaction from past experiences that is producing a particular emotion. And the the, th- the interesting thing about these is that those emotional reactions aren't always right. And these, this can be because like they were learned in a completely different environment. Like one of the things that I 
encounter a lot, both in myself and in others, is like they were learned in a school environment or a home environment where you had very little agency. So one of the things that I think a lot of adults struggle with is remembering I am an adult, I am not a child, I don't have to react to this in child ways, I can actually like leave the situation, I can stand up for myself, I can and solve this problem. Like You have much more agency as an adult, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way when you're looking at an emotional reaction. And so there's something called coherence therapy, which is essentially about debugging this legacy code. It's about saying, okay, okay, where where did I learn this? And and to be honest, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent true if you figure out where you've learned it. It just has to be sort of like true enough. Like why might it why might it have seemed a reasonable reaction to that response? And what are the relevant differences from the current situation and the and the situation which I learned it from? And then you can essentially like while the emotion is act- is active by pointing out the the differences that your pattern matching system should have picked up on, you can go, oh, okay, I guess I don't need to feel that way. And sometimes that works. And it's tricky and imperfect, but like it's it does seem to genuinely help people improve their emotional responses a lot of the time. Uh, certainly it's worked for me. Do you think... So I'm, I'm resonating a lot here because, you know, I, I'm a software engineer and I used to be a software engineering manager mm-hmm. and dealing with, you know, your, your, your people's, your subordinates problems is part mm-hmm. of part, part and parcel of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's something about being a software engineer or like, what is it about, this is a badly formed question, but like, what is it about the, your approach that helps software engineers? I think the, There are a couple of things. One of them is that software engineers are honestly too prone to dismiss stuff that's that seems a bit fluffy or a bit a bit too much (laughs) like like what one of the one of the things that is probably one of my more useful services is that i read texts from the humanities and then i translate them into terms that software developers won't immediately reject um example i think like the the emotional stuff just now was an example another one was i was going to say i did a keynote for pycon uk a few years ago in which i talked about James C. Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, but actually mm. software developers mostly like Seeing Like a State, I think. Yes. Or at least they like <laughs> they like the blog posts about it. They don't like the book because none of them have actually read the book. That is so true. Yeah. Which uh, I sort of think is fair enough, but, uh, but let's think. So another example, which I know we've talked about a little bit in the past, is I have a blog post about false negatives and false positives in in interviewing. And a lot of my thoughts on that subject have been sort of informed by, I guess that one wasn't so much, but but it sort of comes from a lot of like the um, feminist epistemology literature, which is both like feminism and philosophy, and thus like software developers are not particularly likely to read academic texts on that. But but do like largely point to relatively concrete problems that people actually face. And so I think once you can explain them to people without using the word hermeneutical, they're much more likely to take you seriously. Because, of course, as we know, software developers don't like weird jargon ever. <laughs> that, that was a <laughs> good joke. <laughs> um, could you sort of 
you referred to the idea, but I, I, th- I thought it would be useful to sort of like just talk about the idea of the, mm-hmm. the whole, you know, that those, I think it was like two blog posts that you talk about hiring and false positives, false negatives, mm-hmm. which are terms yeah. that in the blog post you say you don't like to use. Yeah. So could you explain that? Like, yeah. Okay. So when, when you're hiring someone, there are two things that can go wrong, more or less. You can hire someone we shouldn't have, or you can refail, or that you can not hire someone when, uh, who you should have hired. And in the sort of the literature of false positive and false negative terms, a false positive is hiring someone who you shouldn't have hired. A false negative is, is not hiring someone who you should have. But I'll call them like bad hires and bad rejects, I guess. is it? And the thing is that you have like bad hires cause you a real problem. Like if you've hired someone and you shouldn't have, then best case scenario, you fire them, which takes a while, wastes a lot of your time, and like you're paying the money and they're causing you problems while you're there, while they're there. Like worst case scenario is that you don't fire them and that they keep on forever at your company, costing you money and causing problems. And this is a highly visible problem that causes you a lot of issues. On the other hand, if you have a bad reject, someone who you don't hire, who would have been great, you're never going to notice this. You're never going to... I mean, you'll occasionally notice this, but like most of the time what will happen is that you will say, sorry, we're not going to hire you, and then they will leave and you'll never hear from them again. And so as a result, you have a very strong incentive to reduce your bad hire rate. And... The only thing that gives you an incentive to reduce your bad reject rate is that hiring is expensive. Like, if um, if you reject too many people who you shouldn't have, you might end up spending like an order of magnitude more on hiring than you otherwise would have. But like, this is the sort of cost that is hard to understand. Like, you'll just think of it as like, oh well, fact of life, hiring is expensive, and. The additional problem that I talk about in one of these blog, blog posts is is an ethical one, which is that you look for traits. If you look for traits that are good signs that someone is a good fit, but whose absence is not a good sign that someone's a bad fit, then this will look very good on the minimize bad hire rate metric, but look very bad on the minimize bad reject metric. So your, your classical example of this is looking for open source contributions on CVs. It's if you if someone has done great open source contributions, then it is probably legitimately true that they are a great hire. It may not be like they may turn out to be a complete asshole, but like on technical skills, they are probably genuinely quite good. But there's um there's all sorts of like problems with this in terms of disproportionate rates of participation in open source. Like I think open source participation is far more male than even background for software development. I don't necessarily think that in itself is a problem because I also think open source is horribly exploitative, but it's but like it, it leads to problems when we tie status to to status and hiring to open source contributions. And in general, what ha- and like another classic example of this is only hiring people from top universities. Like many great people go to less top universities and get ruled out of hiring when they shouldn't have been. And so this is the problem I was talking about in this post is the there are all of these invisible ways that like add up on the false negative rate and are kind of unethical unintentionally and we should pay more attention to. And also like from a business point of view are just 
um, stupid because, or not necessarily stupid, but like we're discounting the cost of them in ways that yes. we shouldn't be by by just sort of shrugging our shoulders and saying the hiring is expensive. I think what struck me as like remarkable about that post is that you pointed out that this is just a natural sort of uh, side effect of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not nobody's being evil, right? Mm-hmm. They're just sort of responding to the incentives that are in front of them, which is that hiring the wrong person is really painful yeah. because you have to fire them, right? Or, and you have mm-hmm. to deal with the fallout of like, you know, the however long they stay with you, yeah. there are, they are problems with that. And so as a result, you know, and I feel this keenly. And as I was reading your post, I was sort of reflecting on my experiences because they evolve in exactly the way that you pointed out mm-hmm. uh, that, that, you know, it would lead me and or like any other hiring ostensibly fair ostensibly like you know somebody who wants to be good uh, at hiring just down the wrong path where we completely reject candidates that we mm. that are you know otherwise like it's not just it, it's sort of like a subtle thing that you were trying mm. to point out right it's it's not that we were explicitly rejecting that is that we just they self-select out of the pool or yeah. or or whatever and, and and therefore like we have even more of a diversity problem in tech mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and yeah, I very much agree that like this problem is not caused by anyone being actively evil. I think it's not; it's an inevitable sort of unthinking following of the incentives. Like, I think once the once you're aware of the problem, you can sort of start to sink in a bit of extra effort up front, and you will get um, access to all sorts of candidates who you would previously have excluded and and rebalanced to basically to have a low have a lower false negative rate sorry now i'm doing it lower, ba- lower, lower bad reject rate while keeping the the bad hire rate more or less the same it just it requires knowledge and a bit of upfront investment of effort and the reality is that like probably it is still going to be the case that your bad hire rate is always going to be more important than your bad reject rate but i think like the put, putting in upfront effort to try and lower the latter is worth doing very much from an ethical point of view and arguably from a business point of view as well. Sort of loop this back to your work with programmers. Other ways uh, do programmers sort of like harm themselves without knowing it in their careers? Gosh, that's a good question. I might, I might need to think about that for a moment. I think the... The biggest one is they expect too much to work like programming. It's programming is very much a. This isn't a hundred percent true, but like it's ninety percent true. Programming is very much a deterministic discipline where like you tell the computer what to do and it does it, and you are expressing things in a precise language and the computer is following your instructions precisely, and the data you're working with is all like already turned into a, a digital format that you can work with. It's unless you're sort of working at like the cutting edge of human computer interaction, like you're largely taking the way that a human interacts with a computer is given and only are only working with that digital data. And the real world is much messier than that. And often there isn't a single right answer. Often things behave in weird ways. Often things aren't going to be 100% right and you need to work with them anyway. And so I, I guess like there's this treating the real world as 
both having and needing more precision than it actually does. And I think you see this a lot in the sort of hacker news commentator has discovered field and immediately solved it in five minutes style of comment. And that's sort of the extreme failure mode. But you also you also see this in sort of like the way that programmers argue, for example. It's like there is very much this demand for precision in cases that precision is probably not really what's needed here. Could you give like a concrete example of like something that limits a program? Maybe it's somebody you know, maybe it's yourself in, in their careers as a result of their, their being a programmer. Um, I mean, as a result of their being a programmer is not necessary. Or, but yeah, it's like, true, the, yeah, like the, yeah, the programmer mindset. Sorry, yes. now, now, I'm, now I'm doing the unnecessary precision thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to it. I was a software engineering manager, yeah. so... Yeah. This is like brilliant. I sh- yeah, I should have a good answer to this off the top of my head, but I'm not sure that I do. I'll give you my favorite, well, one of my mm-hmm. favorite examples, which is that, so I have this stuff, fly fucking, mm-hmm. which I think is from some European, I don't know whether it's from Danish or some, some European language, but it was a European hacker who taught it to me, right? Mm-hmm. And he said that it's very useful as a concept to bring up in conversations with software engineers when you're sort of debating <laughs> about something, because the argument will usually be like somebody makes an argument and then they give an example, right, to support mm-hmm. their argument. And the example is like slightly wrong <laughs> in like some way. And then like programmers who pounce on it and then like argue over that completely irrelevant example mm-hmm. uh, for like 30 minutes, wasting everyone's time. And, and the right response is like, you're fly fucking, let's stop, let's move back to the main point. And the, the term fly fucking is like, the fly is so small, you still want to fuck it. <laughs> so, so, so that's my favorite example as like ex- explaining like to, like when this kerfuffle happens and there's a non-technical person in the room, I turn mm-hmm. to them and, and say like, hey, give me a moment, I'll explain to you what just happened. <laughs> and then I go, <laughs> and then I turn to the programmer and say, okay, you're fly fucking, stop. Let's go back to the main point. <laughs> Yes, that is a good example. And and I guess like another example in the programmers having argument space is what I think of as like the Vim versus Emacs or the static typing versus dynamic typing debate Uh. is, and there are sort of like, there are two levels of this. Like one is just like the people behaving so convinced that there's a right answer. And the reality is that there probably isn't a right answer. And there certainly isn't a right answer you can logically argue. And then the sort of the next level of this is, okay, so why don't we have empirical data about this where programmers don't understand empiricism? Um, It's because they think empiricism looks like physics. And the reality is that if you try to do a physics-style experiment on data like Vim and Emacs, say, or static typing versus dynamic typing, it's almost impossible. So what you end up with is like the, these really weak experiments, which try, which sort of gather like a hundred students in a room and try a short task on them and, and see how it goes and conclude that maybe there's a little bit of difference, kind of possibly sort of. And, and these are, they will immediately pounce on all the methodological flaws with these. Not like not a hundred percent inaccurately. Like it, it is true that these are probably they're they're only on inexperienced developers. Yes, because experienced developers are super expensive. There's a relatively small sample size. Yes, because even inexperienced developers are super expensive to run experiments on because they're people. And like it's over a short period of time. Yes, because running it over a long period of time costs proportionately more. And these are all of the problems that you have when trying to do quantitative research on humans. And so you. Ha- 
And the reality is that you just have to bite the bullet and do qualitative research, do like ethnographic studies of what developers actually do. And they will probably never tell you that Vim or Emacs is better because what they'll actually tell you is that both Vim and Emacs are awful. <laughs> what a way to end that anecdote. So so here's here's an interesting sort of like follow-up question to that, right? Like if say we flip that, mm-hmm. you have you have spent a lot of time helping software engineers where they sort of can't they sort of try to apply the programming mindset to too many mm-hmm. things and then it sort of limits them. Whether it's emotionally with their emo- sorry, em- with their emotional lives, or maybe it's like with the with their careers because communication and whatnot, right? But if I could flip that on its head and say like you are now presenting or you're talking to somebody who's non-technical who for whatever reason has to deal with programmers. Maybe they're mm-hmm. a product manager yeah. or maybe they are a CEO, you know, in, 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 a, in a firm that, that requires like a large technical component. What would you tell them to help them sort of work with programmers better? Oh gosh, that's a good question. It's, I think the, So, so far, most of my like clients at the executive level have been ex-programmers, so I have neatly sidestepped this problem by, by being the opposite. I think that no, the, go on, go on. the thing I would probably tell them is, is to think of programmers as like very systematic people. Like At their best, they are. This isn't always true, of course, but... And so... It's yeah, actually, no, that's a good question. I am, um, but I don't I have, have a good answer to. I have a sort of simpler. I think I just I just realized that there is an easier way of asking this. What would a novice get wrong when talking to programmers? I think the first thing that a novice would get wrong when talking to programmers is that they would assume that the programmers are much angrier with them than they actually are because there's there is an ar- there's a strong argument culture in programming and because because like the 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 vim versus emacs thing was a was an example of this but i but those those are the ones i think programmers are actually angry a lot of the time but uh it's yeah that's really bizarre now that you've pointed it out i've never actually huh go on yeah so the thing about the thing about programming is that for technical decisions, there is often like a right answer or not necessarily like, should we do it this way or that? But like, why is this bug happening? What's going wrong here? Like, what is the actual run outcome of running this programming? So programmers live in a world where like most of the time there is an objective truth and people are trying to come to the objective truth. And so like, I think of mathematicians as the more extreme example of this, but like programmers are about 60% of a mathematician in this regard, where like, if a programmer is arguing with you, it's probably because they want to understand and they want to get the right answer, not because they think you're a bad person for having said the thing you did. What's another thing that a novice would get wrong in this? In this? I think the... The thing that, as a as a programmer, has, I've been most frustrated by novices getting wrong, is that often they will assume that like they can understand more of what's going on in the technical decisions than they actually can. It's mm. like one of the things I sort of have as a general principle is that people understand problems much better than they understand solutions as to those problems, and. Particularly, I found when working with, um, usually I found this with people who are in charge of the company, like CEO types, is that they will have some, 
like some very some very clever idea that absolutely will not work and it will take like three hours to explain to them why they won't work and they still won't get it at the end of the three hours and the two there there are two parts to this problem one of them is that they assume that they can understand it and the other is that the programmer really wants to explain it to them Um, (laughs) it's so true (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) the first three times at least afterwards it gets gets old but uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Okay, so basically, if you are a non-technical person um, and you're dealing with programmers, mm-hmm. well, this is really, this is a good advice. Like, you should not try to spend your, your, your time that much in the solution space is what you're saying. Yeah. In, in spe- instead, spend all your time explaining the pro- problem to the programmer. Yeah. Oh, that's really good advice. I'm, I'm going to segue a bit and backtrack a bit and sort of ask you, were there anything you know, that you learned from your hypothesis experience that you brought into your coaching and, you know, your coaching experience that you're doing Mm now? Yeah, so there are a couple of things. Like I I find myself drawing on technical analogies from hypothesis surprisingly often and finding them useful surprisingly often, which I think is a result of like, my brain is very good at drawing connections between things that are that work pretty well, but are not necessarily like the thing that you would come to if if you had like a sensible background. So uh, an example of this is I have a post on my notebook, life is an anytime algorithm. An anytime algorithm is an algorithm that is trying to do something and it's trying to get like the best possible thing. But also at any point you can stop it and say, hey, give me your best answer now and just stop working. I don't care anymore. So for example, shrinking, which I talked about in hypothesis earlier, is your classic example of an anytime algorithm where it's got some test case and it's trying to make the test case smaller and simpler. But like it's doing this to save you time. And if it has been doing this for an hour, you're probably bored now. And you want to, and you want to say, look, just stop, just stop. Give me, give me what you've got. I really don't care about like the last two bytes you're shaving off the answer. Um, and usually you want to stop it long before an hour, but, but this, and so this is, this is an, an, an anytime algorithm where like you're designing to get the best possible result eventually, but you're also designing it so that it makes useful progress along the way. And it, at any given point, you can just, you can just cut it off and say you're done now. And so I've often found it's very useful to structure life projects as an anytime algorithm where like you are trying to achieve some grand goal, but also like you acknowledge that you might just get bored or you might sort of decide it's no longer worth the cost at some point. And you want to make sure that when you do that, you're walking away with something. That is good. That is really good. Wow. I was going to say one of the, this sort of like highlights one of the things that really attracted me to your writing, which is that you have a very... You have a very rigorous, I guess rigorous is the right word for it, right? Approach to self-improvement and life mm-hmm. skills and learning. Maybe sort of to start off this this section of your work, uh, could you talk a bit about like how or why you think you're effective at those set of uh, topics? Yeah, so I, I guess one thing I would say is rigorous approach, but haphazardly applied. Go on, what it's, do you mean by that? What, what I mean is that I... I develop, I essentially like the rigor is often added after the fact. It's, I, I work on whatever feels important at a given point, and I tend to sort of jump from topic to topic based on like what I currently have the 
sort of the highest cost benefit analysis of. There I am doing it again. But it's but I think like one thing that happens a lot if you sort of look at my writing from the outside is like it seems to jump from topic to topic. Like this this week I'm talking about I can't even remember what the last what last newsletter post was about. Uh chopsticks. Chopsticks, yes, exactly. Yes. So that, that was the, the 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 post about me teaching you to use chopsticks. Uh, how's that going, yes. by the way? <laughs> <laughs> Haven't bought it yet. Uh, okay. Fair enough. So um, for listeners who are listening to this, it, this the post about chopsticks is about learning. And I, I don't know how to use uh chopsticks properly. And David suggested that I buy cooking chopsticks, which is large, and that's a way of sort of like a a, si- a lateral move into learning the thing because you're sort of changing the context. Mm-hmm. Um, but but go on. Yeah, so but but this is a perfect example of the writing thing where like we had a conversation and it resulted in me writing something and as a result I will probably like the lateral move approach is more at the forefront of my mind so I'll probably be on that train for a little while or I might hop over and like base something off the off the latest book I'm reading so it gets it's very sort of scattershot do all the things but as part of this Anytime algorithm approach. Like what happens is that when I figure things out, I write about it. And I think the the practice of writing about things as I figured them out is very much what drives this analytical rigorous approach. Because partly because I am coming from a background where I'm used to explaining technical concepts clearly. So like this is just how I explain things. But I think it by its by its nature it produces this sort of set of like really nice usable tools to have the constraint of being able to explain what I'm on about in a single like relatively self-contained essay. Sort of give listeners an uh, a sample of that, like one one example of the many posts that you've written in this self-improvement area. Mm-hmm. So I think like the the foundational one I which was probably was back in 2019 before like I really started the self-improvement writing kick is called how to do hard things and is like there's there's an interesting thing that happens when you write too late like once you've already internalized the idea like while I was writing it it felt very boring and like I was just explaining something obvious and I was just like oh god people people don't need to hear this they know this right and that was not the case that was that that would landed at the top of hacker news for a while and was is I think my second most popular piece of writing the first one being a piece of stargate fan fiction but <laughs> <laughs> Are you not familiar with my work in the in Stargate fanfiction, etc.? Absolutely not familiar. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I buy chopsticks. Yes, <laughs> the the Stargate fanfiction, of course, being my other great eight contribution to little software testing. <laughs> Wait, wait, so so go on about how to do hard things. Yeah. So how to how to do hard things is essentially when there is something that is too hard for you to do, find something like it that and like it's hard enough that just trying it doesn't get you get you any traction. You find something that is easy for you to do and you make it hard in exactly one way that is like the hard thing. So if you are struggling with writing a book, write a short story. If you are struggling to juggle, try just like tossing a ball up and down one hand. Like I mean that's not strictly an example, but, but like the point the point is fi- find something easy that is easy for you and sort of like try and draw a path in the direction of the hard thing. And I think this is part of why I have this haphazard approach in some ways is that like I am always finding something easy and sort of taking the next next step from there and often that is in the direction of some grander goal but like from the ground that isn't necessarily obvious this is this is really 
interesting. Was this, you think, this approach, did it inform your approach to hypothesis? Because I'm sort of seeing pa- parallels here, you know? I think that was written after I had done most of my major work on hypothesis. But, but what- so was it something that informed me? Hypothesis hypothesis was much more done in a solve the problem in front of you sort of mindset, where it's I had this thing that existed and it was working, and so it was a similar it was a similar incremental approach, but mm. there wasn't some overarching goal I was reaching to it, reaching towards particularly. It was it was much more I have a practical problem that I want to solve in the con- and hypothesis in its current form is sort of infrastructure for solving that problem. But Right. Um, so this how to do hard things, like from which part of your life did it come from? Um to some degree all of my life, I think. Like I but I guess like my two the two main things that I have practiced it most on are software development and writing. It's I've been continuously improving at both for most of the last uh let's say 15 years, it's closer to 20 years, but, and a lot of that has been not necessarily all at all times with a single overarching goal, but it has been very much this take an easy thing and make it harder approach and sort of like continually pushing the boundaries of the comfort zone to try to improve at the the skill. So, one one thing that you've mentioned in the past is that you are pretty good at explaining computers. And this sort of like mm-hmm. ties into everything we've yeah. talked about before. And I think you're writing a book about that, right? That's the plan. It's, it has been slightly shelved this month because this month was the, the point where I was going to be focusing on it. And then I got a bunch of potential clients for the team training stuff. And so I've been a bit more focused on that. But it's a thing that has come out and uh, come up in my writing and sort of a bunch of times and the the starting point for the book is to assemble a bunch of essays I've already written about it and try and fill in the gaps and expand upon them. Could you sort of say more about what's like what's the pitch and what are some of the approaches inside the book? So the the basic pitch is that you need to so I wrote a I wrote how to explain anything to everybody a blog post a while ago where essentially the core concept of it is that in order to explain something you need to put something you need to put it in terms that they already know um, and this is the single biggest thing that programmers fail at when trying to explain technical concepts is that they assume people know things that they don't know. So you heard some of this earlier when I was explaining hypothesis to non-developers. I started by going, okay, so first let me tell you about software testing. Um, And that is an example of something that I have learned slightly the hard way, A, that you need to first check in with people to see if they understand before explaining hypothesis. Um, And so... The how to explain computers is about providing people with sort of the layers of scaffolding they need to understand and understand something. And this can be, yeah, yeah this, can, this can be either to give someone a complete understanding, like teaching someone to go from novice to developer, or it can be to explaining the problem to someone, or it can be giving people sort of like a sense of the thing. And it's also to a large degree about communication skills. Here, I'm going to put you on the spot. Suppose I come to you and say, as a non-technical person, as you well know, like obviously I know nothing about computers, and I say, Cedric, what's a web browser? 
Oh dear. Web browser is the, it's Chrome. <laughs> it's a thing that you use to view web pages. Okay. Yeah. Sort of wind, uh, I'm sort of making a face here for, for if you're listening <laughs> on the podcast, because like, it's really hard. I guess as a programmer, like all these concepts just suddenly exploded in my brain. Um, and to sort of like make, make a sort of, to, to sort of tell a funny story about this, there was once a workshop that I did in university when my friend and I, we had a bet going, like we would not mention, and the workshop was to teach uh, the basics of HTML and CSS, which, which are these sort of basic building blocks of making websites, right? And we had a bet going, like whoever said the word DOM once <laughs> would have to pay the other person. And and, and thankfully, I, I didn't fail. <laughs> my friend failed. Um, <laughs> and, and for non-programmers listening to this, the DOM is the Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> this is, you're, you're really putting me on the spot here. It is the thing that the browser constructs in order to sh- show you the web page. It's totally unnecessary. You don't need to know anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is a question that I posed when I was giving um, some lectures in academic writing a while ago. And I did come up, I don't remember what I said at the time. I, I, uh, I did come up with what I think was a reasonable explanation of a web browser to uh, non-technical people. And then I pointed out that this was the wrong answer because the right answer is, why do you want to know? Oh my God. Oh my God. That is so true. <laughs> that is so good. Um, because if, if you launch into a technical explanation of HTML and CSS and so on and so forth. So one thing you did write, which was good, by the way, was that you said you gave, you gave a concrete example to start with. You said Chrome. Because like my prototype answer for is this is like this website is telling me that I need to use a supported web browser. Ooh, that's a, wow. My answer will completely change if yep. somebody was asking with that context in mind. Yep. Oh, I uh, can, s- oh, wow. Wow, I can totally see now why, uh, yes, companies should hire you to teach programmers <laughs> to, to communicate better with the rest of the company. Good. Oh my goodness. Do you have another example in this, in this sort of like category? This is amazing. Um, someone once asked me what a programming language was and. Ah, <laughs> and and here there's here there's no trick to this. Like he was genuinely just curious. The context was that he was the uh, son of someone who was at a Python conference with me, and so like he he was there essentially. Like we were in Namibia at the time, so he was there partly for the holiday and partly I think because like it was an interesting learning experience for for him. How old was he? It's a good question. He was late teens, so I, I think somewhere in the sixteen to eighteen region. I think it's and I I asked him how like how much detail he wanted and like whether he had some practical question in mind here. And the answer was that he didn't have a practical question in mind here, and he wanted a lot of detail. So I I walked him essentially like down the whole stack. I, I was just like, okay, so a a computer a computer is a machine that follows a series of instructions and like it's got various pr- things like it's got RAM which it can store information in, it's got a CPU which executes these instructions and by default these instructions are just like this incomprehensible stream of numbers that don't make it like you can't really read as as human. So what we want is to be able to like 
take something that a human can read and translate it into these series of instructions. And I went into a lot more detail than that, but but that's the basic idea. And one of the other programmers was sort of sitting, sort of sitting in listening, and he was just like, "It's interesting. I I was waiting for you to use a big word that you hadn't explained, and you never did that." Incredible. Um, I think so. If for those of you who are sort of listening, like um, the the really mind blowing thing for me was David explained to me what the mental model was for people who were good at math, and the context here is that I am horrible at math, and I I was never good at it. I struggled with it in school, and like the main main reason for that was that in secondary school, in my very final year before the school leaving exams, like there, there was a I, re- I still remember the class where like the, the teacher was like ah oh, I forgot to teach you trigonometry. <laughs> And there's no time. <laughs> and there's no time left to teach you. So I guess you have to like, let's just pray that it doesn't come out in the exam. And it didn't, thankfully. And I got an A. But but then like forever, ever since then, right? Like and and I think the way you put it very sort of succinctly was math is very unforgiving. If you lack a foundational pillar, right, you will suffer when you start going on to pre-university and then university. And that was exactly my experience. Mm-hmm. And the way that you sort of explained to me, and, and I'll let you sort of like explain it uh, in a second is like people who are good at math don't do what you think that they do everybody thinks that good math people just do you know what they learn to do in secondary school which is to regurgitate learn rules and david perhaps you you should explain this because this was quite profound to me yeah, so I think your typical experience of someone who ends up being good at maths is that in about the first five minutes of the class, they go, oh, I get it now. And then the teacher keeps speaking for the rest of the class, and they zone out and think about something else. And the the problem with the model that you try to learn in school is that you learn you memorize maths as this long list of like facts and rules and rituals to, rules to, to do, and no one ever actually explains to you what's going on. And there's a, I'm a big fan of like a paper by Lockhart called A Mathematician's Lament, which basically complains about the deplorable state of mathematics, the mathematical education. And there's this great line in it about how everyone thinks that they, they understand the problem. And they, the teachers say we need more funding. Like the government says we need more discipline. And, and the students say maths class, math class is stupid and boring and I hate it. And they are the only ones who are right. And. Mathematics is, it is a body of working knowledge. Like, you learn mathematics in order to do things. Like, you, you solve problems, you spot interesting patterns, you try to figure out those interesting patterns. It's, and you fit everything together. Like, when you are, if you try to, like, I can't remember the quadratic formula off the top of my head, but I could work it out. And hmm. the fact that I can work it out meant, means that when I am using it on a regular basis, it will be no, it will not be difficult for me to remember it because, because I, I don't get to a point where I'm using the quadratic formula and, or I need to use the quadratic formula and I can't and then I'm stuck and I don't, and as a result, I get no practice in the quadratic formula. Instead, what I go is like, oh, I think it has roughly this form and I know that this is roughly how the proof is going. I'll just complete the square. You'll never have heard the complete complete the square in your maths class, probably, but like it's a very simple proof step where, which is how you work out the quadratic formula. Good. And so by 
by knowing all of these intermediate steps and sort of treating mathematics as just like a working skill, which I'm actually using, it's by doing mathematics I get better at mathematics, rather than by doing mathematics I I've already I apply the things that I've already learned. And you barely ever do mathematics in this sense in school. Like you never you're never really told how to prove things to you you do some proof in geometry but like even the proof is bad that is badly explained and tends to be like the class people hate the most and and so there's just there's there is a lot of sort of like mindset of how proof works and how knowledge fits together that no one ever sits you down and explains the bare facts to you and this is yes this is i think it especially bites people in mathematics because mathematics is so abstracted from anything that people are actually doing that yeah so this is this is the other thing that i think is like my version of lockhart's uh thing of maths class is stupid and boring is that like in class people ask when am i going to actually use this and teachers treat this as like an invalid question but no this is the correct question it's you if you do not find it interesting and you're not going to use it you shouldn't be learning it because you won't actually be able to remember it and Using it is how you remember mathematics. Yes. I think why your explanation was so resonant was because... So I, I did a computer science degree. You, you did math, right? In mm-hmm. university. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we had five, I think five classes it was that was math, right? And, and there were really good math people in the class. It was in the math mm-hmm. department. It was taught by math lecturers, um, math professors. And they did exactly what you described. I, I noticed this, right? They were like, um, okay, I got it. And then they're bored. And then, and then like, they're, they're off doing other things during class. So when you mm-hmm. described that, I was like, ah, that must have been what was going on in their internal world. Mm-hmm. And, and everything you said about like, they worked it out as a, as a body of working knowledge mapped 100% to whenever I went to these people for, for advice, for help, right? Mm-hmm. They had this very intuitive sense of the problem. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't the way I could tell that there was something very deep that was going on, some sort of cognitive process that I had no access to. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what it was um, until you explain it. Mm-hmm. And so I, now I wish I could have gone back in time and sort of like told my younger self, like, this is what actually they're, they're doing. And this is how you get good at math. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with this? Or like, how did you stumble onto this? I don't remember my school math classes enough that I can properly answer that, but it's the honest answer is just that I'm quite smart. Uh, and I didn't have much better to do with my time. So I don't know. It's like, not to say that you're not smart, of course, but like, it's very much like from my, from my perspective, the thing that was happening in maths class was that I, they just weren't teaching me anything very hard. So I essentially had a lot of time. Like, I think there's an important thing with with learning in general, which is that you need slack time in order to actually sit and integrate it. You can't just you can't just sit there and take in information at the rate it's being given to you. You actually sort of sit and process it and so on. And so I think with mathematics in particular, or because of how much it builds on itself, but with everything really, like if you are better than is needed to be for the material, then you will have this experience of sitting in class class and and essentially like having that slack time built into the class because you don't need to pay that much attention. And 
This then compounds as an advantage because you have a solid foundation to build on for the next phase. So like um, if you what you did in the previous step of like properly integrating the material that you're now building on means that you have the an even bigger advantage in the next phase. So I think like it is a mix of intelligence and luck early on mm-hmm. and having like a good a decently mathematically shaped brain and and I couldn't have explained any of this to you until probably like the last five years it's like i knew that i knew intuitively that this was go- what was going on but until i spent a lot of time talking to people and reading literature on skill development and expertise and right. trying to fit together like what it was that people were actually struggling with i couldn't have explained my own experience in this way but because i think like i at the time, mathematics just felt kind of obvious, and I didn't really start struggling with mathematics until my third year of university, which turns out is an unfortunate thing year to start struggling because they assume you know how to do hard work for it at that point. But yes, yes. So I guess we're we're near, nearing time right now, and I just wanted to sort of like shift the conversation to the last bit where you know we get to talk a bit about your current practice where you're trying to start doing what you do for individuals with mm-hmm. organizations and teams could you talk a, a bit about like what you hope to accomplish there and what you you know what's going on right now yeah so um what i hope to accomplish there is i've worked in a number of different software teams and i know like how to help software developers with their problem solving and soft skills quite well at an individual level and it's just very clear to me that like a lot of teams are even like very good teams like they have some area that they're struggling with and having someone who can come in and essentially say hey what's up um what what are what are the problems you're facing shall we get shall we like look at them and solve them together is good for like i think it's the thing that most teams would benefit from and to be honest i expect that the teams will do about 80% of the work because possibly possibly more than that and my role coming in will be to do essentially facilitate and give them like the nudge in the right direction that is needed to make sure that what they're doing is the right work because it's partly because I've gotten good at that helping individuals I've also been doing some more executive style coaching with a CTO and a senior software developer and so like I'm reasonably confident at this point that like the things that I had developed largely for solving life problems work pretty well for business I mean if anything the CTO I coach is my easiest client because there are so many problems to talk about but I mean that's not entirely like that makes it sound bad like i just mean that like a business is a yes large complex entity like if anything his business seems unusually good and there's still a lot to talk about no no definitely like i i resonate with that as well because there's always a fire to put out in the business yeah. and when you put out the biggest fire there's a, like a second biggest fire that's yeah always yeah, yeah exactly it's like yeah the, the the fun the universal constant of business is that something is always going wrong and something could always be better and it's i think there's a thing that gary klein says at some point in one of his books about how working on team cognition is so much easier than working on individual cognition because like all of the moving parts are visible to you i can't look inside your brain and see what's happening but i can talk to your team members and talk and ask them what they think is happening so i think to make this more concrete right like i think we've sort of 
articulated one key value. I would have loved to hire you or someone like you to talk to my programmers and get them better at talking to non-technical mm-hmm. people in my yeah. company. You know, mm-hmm. Th- that's sort of like one aspect of it. What what other aspects are are you sort of like good at at helping? So one concrete thing that I'm hoping to help people with is sprint planning. Like I think I think that. People are bad at understanding the dynamics of sprint planning. And so a simple example of this is that when you exceed your, like when you don't get all the cards done from the, from a sprint, that's a problem, right? How big of a problem is it? Depends, right? On what, what else is going on? Um, yeah. So I would argue that like, you should treat it as a much bigger problem than people traditionally treat it as because this partly ties into the thing I was saying of Slack and learning. Like Building Slack into your systems is a good way of ensuring that everything works better. People are learning better. People are doing better work. People are um, able to deal with unexpected contingencies. Um, And so when you exceed your, your sprint goals, you that is both a sign that you have significantly overestimated how much work you can get done in a sprint and it's also a sign that you are running with no slack and so if you get to a point where essentially you are to within rounding error always unless like some genuinely once in a blue moon catastrophe occurs completing your scheduled task for the sprints then what you will probably find is that everything will work better and over time, the amount of, ta- of work you can get done will, without exceeding your sprint goals, will will go up. And so, like the sprints will actually become more productive by doing that. And as long as you are routinely exp- exceeding your sprint goals, you will end up in what I refer to as the too busy fighting fires to invest in firefighting infrastructure problem. Like everything will be on fire all the time, and as a result, you will be significantly less productive than you could all otherwise would be and also all of your team is stressed and also management can't predict what is reliably going to happen well okay that that makes that makes a ton of sense i did not think about it like that that's that's really cool all right thank you david it's we're at time i enjoyed this a lot and i learned a lot from this oh thank you very much cedric it's been a pleasure i enjoyed it a lot too all right okay i hope you enjoyed that episode of Commonplace Expertise. If you like it, I will be very grateful if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. David, if you want more of him, may be found on Twitter at drmacgyver and his newsletter where you can read his writing on self-improvement or soft skills for hackers, programmers, uh, may be found at drmacgyver.substack.com. I've linked to both in the show notes if you are listening to this on your podcast app um, or below in the description if you're watching this on YouTube. Thank you for watching or listening and I'll see you in the next one.